Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 143 and it's Sunday 11th of October 2020. How has your week been, Kirsty? Um, pretty good. I've been reading the Return of the Jedi novelization from 1983, and I'm, I think that you have too, <laughs> hopefully, because it's what I we're going to discuss. I have indeed. <laughs> I have indeed. Yeah. Um, so I did my podcast duties for the week, but to be fair, it was a very nice duty because I really enjoyed this book. Spoiler. Um, but yeah, we'll go into the reasons why is shortly, so we have some news and stuff to get to first. Yeah. I also wanted to say happy anniversary. Yes, I know. I cannot believe that we have been doing this for four years. It <laughs> honestly blows my mind. Yeah, like we started this in 2016. Like, it's just crazy. It's like just thinking about how wildly different fandom was then. You mm. know, that was over a year before The Last Jedi came out that we started this podcast. I think some of the earliest things that we talked about were things like rumours and reports from the set of The Last Jedi and <laughs> ooh, what is this film possibly going to be and oh god like the excitement of things like the celebration before the movie came out and having the poster reveal that amazing red poster with the big faces of Luke and Kylo Ren oh, mm-hmm. oh my god so many great memories Like I really enjoy doing this show and I'm so happy that we're still going so yeah happy anniversary to you too Kirsty. Thank you. Yeah, it's wild. I feel like every year we say, oh, I can't believe how many hours must we have spent talking about Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. But it's well, also like there's still so much to cover if we want to. So there's just, yeah. you know, Star Wars canon is boundless. So. Exactly. Yeah. When you look at Blast Points, which is an amazing show that people should check out if they haven't, and the fact they can dedicate a whole month purely to content about the Ewok made for TV movies, that mm-hmm. tells you a lot about Star Wars and the boundless possibilities of Star Wars podcasting. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank totally. you very much to everyone who has been with this podcast. Like, whether you started listening from 2016 in which case wow i'm amazed you're still here and that's super awesome so thank you or if you've come aboard more recently like we're honestly grateful for every listener and it it is kind of weird you know because you do put the you do put the show out there and then it's sort of like its own thing you know you're sort of passing it over to a new audience who's going to hear it and interact with it and that's a really cool thing and yeah it's just always amazing to me that people listen and get something out of the show so yeah thank you Mm -hmm. yeah thank you everyone and it's also just really nice to hear from people like even as they're listening to an episode and something strikes them or they want to respond to something that we're talking about I know (laughs) on our last episode I think we were talking about the Mandalorian winning all those Emmys and neither of us know much about the Emmys we were like how do they are they nominating each episode individually? How does that work? And we got some very patient people <laughs> explaining it to us, so that was helpful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, for honestly, thank you everyone. It's really great when people do that because I like to learn and I like to improve my knowledge of things and yeah, there's clearly very clever people who listen to the show who are in a position to fill those gaps in our in our knowledge. So yeah, it's much appreciated. I think we yeah. also got some really nice comments about Afra and like people 
like illuminating more about how the audio drama interacts with the comic books which is really good especially the suggestion that there's i know like there's like a digital subscription service where Mm. you can like join up and then you can basically access all the comics in the run like for like a monthly fee which does make it much more plausible that i would engage with comics you know because obviously don't want to pay per issue but like a rental situation sounds much more desirable yeah, someone kindly let us know, because we, we were wondering about this, because I'd heard from people's reviews of the Afro audio drama that it was going over stories that had then been adapted from the comics. And I thought it was the Afro series that they were focusing on, but actually it's not. Apparently the stuff that's in the audio drama is mostly pulled from the Star Wars comics, like that general line and the Darth Vader ones. And Afro's yeah. own comic is something different. So that that is really encouraging, because then that gives me a reason to go and seek that out. So thank you. Yeah, no, so thanks everyone. Um, and yeah, also on the note of hearing from our listeners, um, you were trawling through our reviews on iTunes, weren't you, Kirsty? And you uncovered a really nice one from April this year, I believe. Um, I was wondering if you could read that one out. Yeah, so again, this is something that other people probably know. <laughs> we're just like Luddites. <laughs> um, but um, to other people who are listening who might have podcasts and aren't aware, iTunes like divides up your reviews by country. So I'm in the US, so I when I go to iTunes, I see those ones. And Rachel sees ones in the UK, but you can also change the URL to be like, oh, you're in New Zealand or France or whatever. And the reviews are kind of segmented that way for some reason. So I hadn't seen this one before. Um, it's from Magsol, and it says, A debt of gratitude. I'd like to thank this podcast. I knew walking out of The Force Awakens that the sequel trilogy wasn't heading in the direction that I'd hoped for. After The Last Jedi, I was still somewhat disappointed. I never spoke a bad word about it, only discussed it with my partner, but by the time the last one came around, I'd thought, why don't I like it? So I went out of my way to find those that did. A particular part of the fandom I didn't get was the Raylo community, so I did a bit of searching and came across this lovely show. Retroactively following this podcast has helped me completely change my perspective. I found myself watching The Last Jedi for the first time since the cinema release the other day, and I kept everything these excellent hosts had talked about for hours in my mind. And do you know what? I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me rekindle my appreciation for new stories set in a galaxy far, far away. Oh, so nice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, really I always lovely. struggle to know what to say when people are just so kind and generous about our podcast, you know? Like, it's just really great and touching and especially the thought of people going over our backlog you know so I'm always very self-conscious and always think oh my gosh but like the sound quality on the early episodes oh no (laughs) (laughs) and it just gives me all this anxiety but mainly it just feels lovely and it makes me feel very grateful and touched by yeah the fact that the show means something to people so yeah thank you very much it's a really lovely review and sorry it took a while for us to pick up on it i I must admit i literally never check itunes reviews but i I should start doing it more often this was really lovely to read because to think that our enthusiasm for that film helped someone else kind of change their mind on it and now that they can enjoy it that's really nice to to feel like we're spreading the tlj love yeah exactly it's really nice to be an evangelist for something that awesome (laughs) i know that film it continues to be divisive like you know a lot of star wars films are like that really aren't they but 
Um, and it, it's also okay if it's just not for you. You know, that yeah. that's valid if you feel that way. But um, it also might just be a case of someone watching it at the wrong time or kind of, yeah, you go in with expectations that aren't met, but it does something quite different and you don't know how you feel about it and it just has to kind of percolate for a while. So I'm really happy that Maxwell is enjoying The Last Jedi now. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, thank you very much for the lovely review. So yeah, let's move on into the news section. So there's been a few little bits and pieces, nothing earth shattering, but some stuff to just keep things percolating along. Um, So the first thing is that we have some new High Republic news. Like, I don't think there was anything too, like, earth-shaking to come out of this. It was mostly, like, elaborations on what we knew we were, what we knew we were already getting. And also some fresh insights, like the fact that Kevin Scott is going to be writing yet another High Republic book that is coming in summer 2021. So, as far as I'm aware, we know very little about that sec- about that newly announced book, but it's certainly a thing that's coming. And we also have a... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it always sounds so deadpan. Um, and, uh, yeah, we also have a new opening crawl, which I believe is to, like, kickstart the whole High Republic series, because there is going to be a metric ton of content, basically, about the High Republic, and... I don't know how you feel about it, Kirsty, but I must admit to feeling a little bit intimidated at the moment. I'm kind of nervous that they've almost gone too hard for it. You know, like maybe I'm too much for like a softly, softly person, but I feel like they're placing all their bets on this. It's like the future of Star Wars transmedia storytelling, you know, in terms of this is our big new project to tide us over until we get new movies to riff off. I hadn't given it that much thought, really. It's been starting to hit me recently that they'll have had to do major rescheduling and postponing of movie projects. So something like this that they obviously already had in the works beforehand is probably quite convenient for them. So it makes sense for them to push it a bit harder. Um, Obviously, we have The Mandalorian um, and, and the other shows. I think they're still hoping to film pretty soon, but... Yeah, I don't know when we'll see another Star Wars movie in the theatres, so... Yeah. Maybe we're entering another dark age before we just have the publishing. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. I think I'm just interested to see how it will hit, you know, with the fan base, in terms of the level of take-up and the level of enthusiasm there will be for it. Because, yeah, they're clearly pushing it in a big way and they want it to be very successful and, like, quite widely consumed i suppose well obviously they want that for everything you know but i think they're clearly placing quite high expectations on this so mm-hmm. yeah i'm just curious to see how it lands is and it's obviously impossible to have an answer to that until it does actually land and things start to publish but yeah yeah it's just interesting yeah and there's about. there's obviously um different stories in there that are catered to very different demographics as well so i don't think i'm sure some people will be completionists and read the entire thing but realistically i'm not i'm not going to do that or be able to and i assume you're the same but um yeah like i definitely want to try at least something i think what i'll do with the high republic content is i'll wait until the first few novels have come out and i will basically assess which like what they seem to be covering you know what the key themes they're interested in engaging with what the characters are like 
which ones have the best reviews to be honest you know so do place some stock in other people's opinions of these types of things and yeah then make decisions from there you know about whether i'll pick it up because Mm -hmm. yeah there's just lots of stuff out there to consume and i like you say i can't possibly read everything that they're going to publish and yeah like i'll i want to have the best possible impression of this initiative so yeah we will see because i think they're start they're going to really start publishing like the novels and stuff early in 2021 i believe which scarily is quite close now well yeah i mean some of it was supposed to be out this summer wasn't it yeah no exactly i think that was meant to be the big launch but for obvious reasons it got pushed back like we will see them soon and it will be interesting to see how those stories turn out so yeah that's my main thoughts on the high republic like did you have any particular thoughts on the new stuff that's come out like recently from new york comic con kirsty um not really just that i continue to be kind of intrigued by some stories over others like i I like claudia gray's star wars writing in general and i i kind of liked the um the snapshot of what that story might be about that we'd already seen a few months back um and anything that hints at a romance that's something that i'm probably going to be more on board for to be honest yeah same yeah i think they're just being kind of obviously we they haven't told us what this big disastrous event is that happens that kind of sets things into chaos so it's kind of hard to know where things are gonna are gonna come from um yeah like i feel like i'm being like a troll or something when i do this but honestly whenever i see the words great disaster in print i just find myself like sniggering like i don't know it just feels a bit ridiculous to me it's very epic isn't it it's almost like biblical that what they're going for great disaster like and it's like (laughs) I, I don't know, I feel like there's been so much mystery and so much build-up that it's going to have to be something pretty damn great to actually impress me that it lives up to the name, you know? Uh, <laughs> and I'll, I'll be really amused if it's actually something kind of insignificant, like, in the greater scheme. But. Well, maybe it is, and maybe that's the thing. It's like it's this event that starts in the beginning, but that's not really the point. It just kind of kicks things off. Yeah. Exactly. So I guess there's the whole MacGuffin idea, isn't there? That there's the thing that everyone that the story is nominally about and that nominally kicks off the action, but is not ultimately important. Yeah. I mean, I'd prefer that. Really, it should be about each character's arc. A bit. I, I don't know. We'll just see. I mean, there's a real range of quality in Star Wars writing, from my perspective. So yes. I, I know that there are people out there who manage to read everything. I just can't do that, but. Even what I have read, I'm like, wow. Um, yeah, it's very up and down. So, Exactly. So let's move on to another piece of Star Wars writing, which is the Empire Strikes Back 40th Anniversary Anthology. So when it was the 40th anniversary of the original Star Wars, they put out from a certain point of view, A New Hope. And that was 40 different short stories, each told from the perspective of a different character in that film. And often character is used with like bunny ears over it because it's usually like an extra who's like in the background at the bar in the cantina um but that's stalls you know those are the sort of characters who've had action figures since 1978 so <laughs> it's not a new thing that those characters have been given a life of their own um but yeah we have much more information now so we have titles for all 40 stories in the empire strikes back anthology and what as well as the author names for all the stories yeah so were there any that stood out to you particularly kirsty as being like oh so i've got a few (laughs) 
Yeah, there's there's one called A Good Kiss by C.B. Lee, and it's about someone in the background in that scene in the tunnel on Hoff between Han and Leia. And every, every time I watch the beginning of Empire, I'm like, oh my god, Han and Leia must have been absolutely insufferable to be around during that time period between A New Hope and Empire. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel for everyone. So is it narrated by the person who like walks literally in between them? Yeah, I don't know for sure, but I assume it's him or one of the other characters there who's just like trying to get through and do their job and these two are just bickering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, and I do really like that as a perspective, that sort of story. I like seeing things from the point of view of the little guy, you know, so you obviously have all these like grand epic dramas and romances and like family battles playing out in these stories and then you... Like Kirsty just said, you have these people just going about their day trying to get the job done. And it's probably a massive pain in the ass, like when these people are having these constant like squabbles in front of you and oh, just these random passionate kisses. Like I wouldn't have any time for it at all. Well, this is the thing. You watch these films so often over so many years that you do start to pay more attention to background characters and creatures and aliens. And you're like, I wonder what their story is. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of cute that they go for these sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's one that stood out to me is we're going to get um, L3 from the solo movie back, um, like obviously considerably later than she was seen in the solo movie because she's now part of the Falcon. Um, and that story is by Brittany N. Williams and it's called Faith and an Old Friend. Um, and... Yeah, like I, I just want to see how that character's doing. Like if she's all right, you know, like how it feels to be like embodied in this ship, and yeah, just like all the hijinks that must go on, you know, like how she expresses herself while in ship form. So yeah, I'm intrigued. They're probably not going to go there with this because they probably want to keep it light and and lovely and kind of humorous. And you know, Elfrey obviously has that very. I don't know. She's very funny, but yes. Um, to me, <laughs> putting her in the ship, I don't think this was their intention, but it seems kind of horrifying to me <laughs> because she was a character. I know she was a droid, but she was like she had this relationship with Lando, and she had agency and opinions, and and then she's just like used as a machine. It was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of disturbing, almost. Yeah, like it does creep me out a bit i think for that exact reason like it's kind of it's a form of body horror in a way <laughs> you know because yeah like droids they are shown with a lot of dignity you know in these stories i know like someone like freepio is the butt of the joke you know but they have like their own society you know they have their own culture and stuff and there's like a bloody movement to free the droids from the human masters you know in star wars and l3 is obviously neatly removed from all that when she's like made one with the falcon you know it's like well there's mm-hmm. no going back for her um and yeah it's kind of dark so <laughs> yeah that's what stalls is it's about disembodiment and like <laughs> stealing all your dignity from you so pretty depressing um i also like that there's a story about torin far do you know who that is kirsty no who's that <laughs> Which is the right answer. Like, I feel embarrassed that I know who Torin Far is. No, I, I know so, who some background characters are, but who's who's that? Early on in The Empire Strikes Back, when there's, like, the control room on Hoth, there's, like, one female, like, controller at the, like, station, 
um, like sending messages and stuff and like moving points around on the board. I think she has one line um, and <laughs> I knew about her existence because I own her action figure. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and to be clear, this is not because I have like any great love for this character, but it was like on deep discount. So I like bought it for 99p in like a clearance shop or something. And yeah, I was like, who's that? And then I searched it and I was like, oh, that's who that character is. Like, did it ring any bells, by the way, when I explained who she is? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll try and keep it in mind next time I watch it. Yeah, she's not a particularly important character. I think she's probably most notable as the only female character in The Empire Strikes Back to have a speaking role apart from Leia. Oh, and her man. speaking role consists of one line. So Okay, well, I guess that explains why they're putting her in there. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to make the most of what you have. So. Yeah. Yes, that story about Torin Far, just to be clear, is Iron Control by Emily Strutsky. So, yeah, check it out. Cool. Um, there's also one about Will Rowhood. Did you see that one, Kirsty? Yeah, yeah, that's nice. I mean, it makes sense that, I mean, if you look, look at the Mandalorian and the behind the scenes documentary, they're clearly aware that he's like a fan favourite. And... Yeah, he has cosplay and yeah, like he's a bit of an icon. So. Like, I still don't understand what that object is meant to be. I know there is an, a canon explanation for what it is, and we're bound to get much more detail in this story. It's about... literally just a container. It's, it's a safe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll find out what was in Will Rowhood's safe. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenants. <laughs> just being stupid. <laughs> Um, I, I also must say that I like the fact that a considerable portion of these stories seem to be about like random inhabitants of Cloud City, which when you think about it, it makes sense because there really aren't many non-main characters in The Empire Strikes Back, you know, even in terms of extras, because like in the original Star Wars, you have so many characters in the cantina, for example, mm. you don't really have an equivalent of that in Empire. It's much more like intimate, you know, and like fo closely focused on the leads. So, yeah, I can see why they had to like milk it for all it was worth when they finally got to Cloud City. So are they people who you actually see in the background at some point or are some of them just completely new? That's a very good question. Like, I don't think it's completely clear. Like, one okay. of them is about a woman from Cloud City. And you do see some, like, female civilians in the background of the Cloud City evacuation. So they could easily just say it's a random woman from that particular group, you know. Okay. So we have Into the Clouds from Karen Strong. I'll read slightly. Uh, I'll read a small amount. Jalen stared at her reflection. Her hair was done up in the Bespin style, looped braids draping her shoulders. She was a lady of means, daughter of a Tibana gas tycoon, a Cloud City socialite. This frivolous clothing should have made her happy. In the past, glamorous garments had been her soothing balm, a second skin in gauzy disguise, a reprieve to shed the understated attire required of her position. She twirled again, but it didn't make her feel any better. More than anything, she yearned to be someone else. Maybe today she could pretend to be a rebel princess. <laughs> so I don't know if the idea is she's used as a decoy for Leia or something. Who it knows? looks like it because the silhouette there next to the passage is the same outfit that Leia wears, right? Yeah. No, which Strange. would suggest it. Yeah. So all will become clear, evidently, hmm. when the anthology is released. Um, but yeah, no, it should be an interesting collection of stories. Like I found... 
the Star Wars anthology a mixed bag, which is what you'd expect. You know, there's so many different authors and so many different characters they're writing about. There's going to be differences in quality and interest between the stories, you know. Um, but yeah, like I'm sure at least some of these will be like interesting and worth reading. Yeah, and it'll be that will make for an interesting discussion when we get around to reading it and which which stories resonate with us and which didn't quite but probably will with other people exactly yeah so like all star wars it's very personal okay (laughs) so the next thing that we have is there's a collider interview with kelly marie tran about her appearance in a new tv show on hulu called monsterland um which she guest starred in and in that interview um kelly said that she would potentially be interested in reprising the role of rose tico under certain circumstances See, I was wondering if you could read out the interview, Kirsty. Okay. Um, so they ask, In December 2019, director John M. Chu threw his hat into the ring for di- making a Disney Plus Rose Tico series. Is that a character that you'd like to revisit if an opportunity came up to explore other aspects of her in a TV series? Tran. He's so cool. I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's so strange. I had so much fun being in that world, but I feel like the pieces would have to fall into a perfect little puzzle and everything would have to feel like it's the right time and the right moment and the right story, like with any other project. But I don't know. She's certainly a character that has more story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there are a lot of characters in that universe that we have yet to hear enough about. It's very (laughs) open-ended. Yeah, she's highly non-committal, which I wouldn't expect anything else. And... Like obviously she's not going to go into this. She's like a very intelligent woman, and she just doesn't want to even go there. I don't think, but she's got to be thinking about the horrendous backlash that she was met with, you know, for playing that character, and like it must have been incredibly hard to deal with that, you know. And before even considering taking on the part of Rose again, that would have to be a serious consideration, you know. Like, what toll is that going to take on me? You know, and it would have to be really, really well done and justified, I think, to be convincing to her that, yeah, it's the right time to reprise the role. But just speaking for myself, selfishly, I I would love to see a Rose project, you know, like I'd love to see a project where she is flat out the star and the centre of attention. You know, it's the least that character deserves because we never got like a proper resolution to her story in the conflict and yeah I, I want that and i think kelly would be fantastic in if with the right writing and if she were really given that focus and that chance to shine i would love it too and i think kelly knows that rose has a huge fandom around yeah. her yeah so she's probably got a lot to weigh up there and also we don't know what has been going on behind the scenes in terms of what's being discussed what what could be on the table or whether any of this is like even a remote possibility so yeah. it makes sense for her to be very like, oh, yeah, you know, if if everything was right, sure, but we don't know. Um, and she has so much other stuff going on as well. So, yeah, exactly. So because, yeah, like one of the greatest things to see in the aftermath of Tross specifically has been the great success Kelly's been having. Yeah, so she's been cast as the princess in the upcoming Disney movie Raya and the Last Dragon, which is a fantastic opportunity. You know, like how many people like have it as their dream to be a Disney princess and now Kelly Marie Tran will literally be a Disney princess 
So that's an awesome get for her. And I've also seen that they're going to do a TV show of Passenger List that she'll feature in, which started mm-hmm. out as a podcast. And yeah, she's just getting lots of great opportunities and it's really heartening. So she's not in want of work. Let's put it that way. I still have my fingers crossed for Kelly being cast in Knives Out too. <laughs> oh God, that would be so nice. Yeah. yeah. Like, I wonder what sort of role Ryan would write for her. I think she could do anything. Same. I would love to see her do something like the complete opposite of Rose Tico. You know, like make her like this really malevolent schemer or someone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, again, just anything to test her, you know, because as you say, Kirsty, she could do it. Yeah. I'd just love to see her and Ryan working together. I think they're really, they're really lovely. Exactly. Can't beat that Last Jedi era. Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) um okay cool um and then finally um we just have a few little bits from ewan mcgregor about the long promised much spoken (laughs) of i'll believe it when i see it obi-wan series sorry i sound so tired but yeah it's just been so long guys it's not it's not quite there because i think maybe we're counting in that all of the endless like rumors and stuff that we're were floating around before they even got close to announcing it officially so that's yeah. not their fault <laughs> yeah no which is true like it's a problem of being in like hashtag deep fandom because you do become like completely mired in like all this rumor and speculation and yeah it can make it so that when you actually get an official announcement you're like well that wasn't announced already <laughs> it's very disorientating um but yeah could you read um what star wars newsnet have to say about this kirsty mm-hmm um, so I think Ewan McGregor was on Graham Norton and they started talking about um, Obi-Wan. While dishing on the series, McGregor discussed how he is now much closer in age to Alec Guinness in the original Star Wars movie in 1977. The legendary actor was 62 years old during the production of A New Hope. McGregor will be 50 years old when production starts in March. McGregor discussed how much of an influence Guinness was on his performance of the Obi-Wan Kenobi character in the prequel trilogy. McGregor focused specifically on older films from early in Alec Guinness's career, citing specifically The Card, a 1952 film in which Guinness plays an ambitious young man who becomes mayor of a town. Now that he is older, he's looking to meet Alec Guinness somewhere in the middle in terms of his performance. Obi-Wan Kenobi will be roughly the same exact age as McGregor is in real life, allowing him a unique opportunity to bring his life and experience to the show. This all sounds good to me, and it's obviously completely logical as well, right? Because, yeah, objectively, Ewan McGregor is that much older now, and he is going to be playing an older Obi-Wan. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, like, how he alters his performance to be, like, an older, wearier man. Because, yeah, a big part of the appeal of young Obi-Wan in the prequels is he is kind of, like, peppy, and he's got lots of energy, and he's, like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and... Obi-Wan certainly won't be like that anymore. So yeah. When he goes through all of that heartbreak of losing Anakin and blaming himself. Yeah, it's going to be pretty grim. (laughs) Well, I hope it's not grim. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, I guess, I don't know, I'm wondering how far they're going to go with it, you know? Like, I wonder if they would literally show, like, dreams slash hallucinations, you know, and, like, see... You know, they could even like show some brief clips and moments from Revenge of the Sith, for example. You've got to think that would play on his mind, you know, oh, seeing absolutely. his best friend be consumed by lava. Yeah, that that stays with you. Definitely stays with you. Yeah. And does he see um watching over Luke as some form of redemption? Yeah. For that? Well, yeah, it's gonna be 
interesting. And I think Ewan McGregor is a talented enough actor to go there if they really do want to have some heaviness and emotional weight. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it will be kind of a mix of tones, to be honest, because they don't want it to be too heavy and dark. It's still, it's Obi-Wan, you know, he needs to have some sass and some one-liners and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I, so I think it'll be like Mandalorian level in terms of tone. You know, she do get like intense, dramatic aspects to the Mandalorian, but for the most part, it is fun adventure. Yeah. And ultimately, this show is going to be on Disney+. Plus. So it's not going to be too intense and gritty. So it could go to the extent that Revenge of the Sith does, because Revenge of the Sith is on Disney Plus, so they clearly consider that okay. Um, but yeah, it won't go beyond it. Essentially, we're not going to see Obi Wan behead people. Let's put it that. Way. Oh my god! <laughs> Where did you go? What? <laughs> that wasn't really something that had crossed my mind. <laughs> Well, you know, like sometimes you see people and they really want this like um, over the top violence. I don't know from these like Jedi characters. Oh well, yeah, but why would? I mean, he's just in exile on Tatooine. He's chilling. <laughs> the sand people might make him angry. He might like have a moment of like connection oh, with Anakin. I don't Anakin. think he'd last long if he wasn't out there, kind of trying to live in relative harmony with <laughs> with the Tusken the Raiders. <laughs> that wouldn't make for a long lasting relationship with your neighbours. Yeah, no, no, I, I think you're right. I, I really don't think there'll be opportunities for that sort of thing. It, we, it's hard to know exactly what to expect. Like we're saying, I, I kind of expect a bit of a mixed bag, not in terms of quality, but just kind of tone and like maybe each episode will have a different focus on on various aspects of his life because there's going to be this sense of loneliness and isolation. Um, but also looking back on all the relationships he's had throughout his life, um, maybe we'll even get some Satine in there. Um, and also the fact that he does have this purpose he's not just there literally doing nothing he's there to protect Luke who he considers the future of the Jedi so yeah there'll be there'll be that hopefulness to it as well I tell you what I would really like to see I'd like to see some element of like good angel and bad angel in terms of like I I don't mean that literally obviously but in terms of like having like voices almost you know like influence him and whether that's like literal agents of the light side and the dark side respectively or just his own like inner dialogue uh, I wouldn't mind but I'd like to see you know like the light side obviously reinforcing what we know to be Obi-Wan's perspective on things you know that Luke is the new hope that like he has to watch over this boy so that he can grow to be an adult and go and save the galaxy basically and then on the devil's side devil in the star wars sense there would be this for but what if this child grows to just be another anakin you know mm. and what if he becomes uncontrollable and only takes the galaxy further into darkness you know because that would tie in well into what actually happens in the original trilogy because as we're going to go into when we talk about the novelization of return of the jedi like luke does come very close to like playing with the dark side you know and he's decidedly tempted by it so it wouldn't be a million miles away from Luke's actual experience if Obi-Wan did have those fears um, but yeah it'll be interesting to see if they go to that sort of place mm-hmm. definitely so they start filming in March is what we got out of this interview Excellent. yeah so fingers crossed it actually happens then because I know they've had false start dates and again like it's been unavoidably pushed back because of various things including the pandemic one imagines um but yeah fingers crossed it all goes ahead and goes smoothly at that point 
Yeah, I wonder realistically if it's going to be possible for people to start just having like bubbles for the work that they're doing. Mm. Great British Bake Off style. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine like just a hotel with everyone working on the Obi-Wan movie? Gosh. I mean, people might start to justify it financially. I, yeah, I don't know. They're doing that for all sorts of things, like the NBA did it. Obviously, yeah. well, yeah. I was going to say, obviously, the NBA have a lot of money, but so did Disney. So it just depends on what they, they see as financially worth that, that investment. Exactly, yeah. It'll be interesting to see where the world is at that point, because, yeah, this virus is a very unpredictable beast. So... Yeah, um, right. So I think it's time to move on to the main event, which is our discussion of the return of the Jedi novelization. Yeah, so obviously this is the third episode in the series. Um, we started it a while back earlier in the year and then we took a hiatus and came back to do Empire. Um, and now we're doing Return of the Jedi. So we'll have completed the original trilogy and we'll be on to the prequels next. And um, for me, I don't know about you, but this is kind of my first read through of all of them except for Revenge of the Sith. Yes, that is the same for me. Like apart from the sequel trilogy ones because I've um already read the novelizations of Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Yeah, same. So, yeah. I think we've basically both read the same ones before. Um but yeah, there no, is a really interesting project and I'm pleased to say that this is a great installment. I really enjoyed it and would absolutely recommend it. Like, to a Star Wars fan, anyway. Like, wouldn't go up to a man in the street and put it in their hands and be like, read this now. <laughs> but yeah, like, for a Star Wars novelization, it's really well done and it absolutely adds to and enriches the experience of ex- the story, in my opinion. So, yeah, like, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's definitely my favourite of the original trilogy ones. Um, and it felt like the writer was more at ease with the characters and knew them better than the other authors had, which makes sense at this point, right? Because the characters yeah. had been around at this point and kind of built up a following. And just uh, by the, this time in the story, you're just kind of more familiar with their motivations. And um, yeah, it really showed in the story, I think, that he was kind of more at ease with writing their inner voices and what what drives them and what connects them with each other exactly yeah it's like i obviously have like a twisted affection for alan dean foster well twisted isn't the right word um but in a strange affection maybe for alan dean foster um but it's not necessarily because i love his writing style you know he has a very eccentric writing style which i enjoy to a certain extent but like there's a certain element of irony in my appreciation of Alan Dean Foster whereas I just genuinely enjoyed the experience of reading this and I felt like there was a real engagement with the emotional struggles and the histories of the characters which yeah as Kirsty said just wasn't really acknowledged and certainly not to the same extent in the previous novelizations so yeah it made this one quite a different experience like it's not as rich or textured as say the novelization of revenge of the sith but i feel like this is a stepping stone towards that you know it's like an evolutionary leap from the previous two yeah we'll obviously get more into it as the discussion goes on but in terms of the main reason why i enjoyed this novelization and its depiction of the characters i was particularly pleasantly surprised by how leia was written yeah and if you've listened to the other two episodes we've done on this series so far You'll know that my expectations were kind of rock bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, 
and to be fair, it, it's been this like steady improvement because Empire Strikes Back was a little better than A New Hope was as well. So, um, yeah, her connection to the Force and like strengthening the relationships that she has with Luke and Han, um, and we'll get into it again, like I said, but mostly how Khan handled the the stuff with Jabba on Tatooine. Yeah. Um, and I guess I can't blame myself for having low expectations where that was concerned. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they were subverted and I, I, I found it really enjoyable. Yeah, no, same. So yeah, I'm going to go into some background to the novelization. Um, so the first tidbit that I wanted to mention briefly is that Ray Carson, who wrote the novelization of The Rise of Skywalker, um, she has actually cited the Reven- the Return of the Jedi novelization as an influence on her own writing, um, which I thought was really cool because I don't know why, like, and it's not actually that surprising when you think about it, but I, I was like, that's really cool that she went back and looked at these older novelizations and like possibly had read them years before, you know, but it was clearly on her mind when she was writing the adaptation of The Rise of Skywalker. So she told StarWars.com in an interview, the other novelization that influenced me was James Kahn's Re- Return of the Jedi. It's a fast, efficient morsel of a book, only 194 pages, but it still feels epic and detailed. And forgive me for being a writer nerd, it's a marvel of scene breaking and paragraph imperfection. <laughs> that book reads as smooth as butter, and I wanted to emulate that kind of pacing. So I, I still haven't read Ray Carson's book, but it does honestly give me a bit more hope for how that novel novelization is done reading that you know so i feel like this is a really solid entry in the novelization series to draw upon as inspiration because yeah it has lots of merits i think it makes sense for her to go back and read this as part of her research for that novelization because it was initially intended to be the end of the story right and now trosses Um, and this is the one novelization that that was the intent for, because obviously Revenge of the Sith was written afterwards, and we knew that wasn't the end of the story. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I always find it's it's kind of similar for The Rise of Skywalker in that these third acts, you have all of these different strands that are obviously racing towards this outcome. And there is this, like, I'm sure it's a challenge for the writers to kind of set that pacing and make sure that everything flows together well. And, it, and it's not kind of a jarring experience going from paragraph to paragraph and and moving from one strand of the story to another but that they all kind of tie together and are kind of feeding each other and keeping that momentum going but i agree with her that this definitely manages it yeah exactly it's a great inspiration um and another thing i found in my research about this novelization is that James Kahn, like Alan Dean Foster before him, has his own website, which I love. It's called That James Kahn, which again, I appreciate. I find it quite charming. Um, it has a very like, mid to late 2000s vibe, whereas Alan Dean Foster's website has a late 90s vibe, I would wow. say. Wow. <laughs> Have you actually seen Alan Dean Foster's website, Kirsty? It's a thing to behold. No, <laughs> I'm not I'm, you. I'm going to send you the link to that website after we finish recording because okay. you need to see it. Um, but yeah, no, it's a cute website, and he's got links to where you can buy his various novelizations. And for each novelization, he has a little write-up about what it was like to write that novel and how he got involved. Um, so yeah, could you read his explanation, Kirsty? Mm -hmm. I got the offer to write this one, I think, for two reasons. 
First, my world enough and time editor at Del Rey Books, Judy Lynn Del Rey, was also the editor for Return of the Jedi, and she recommended me for the gig. After that, Spielberg confirmed to Lucas what a nice job I'd done on Poltergeist. This was a dream job, but also on a very tight schedule. I ended up writing it in 26 days, basing it on an early draft of the script and a lot of production stills. I wrote an entire new chapter about Leia's backstory on Alderaan, but Lucas cut it. It wasn't his version of Leia's backstory, which he knew quite well, and I didn't. So the book cues very close to the film, with some added dimension to the characters and my own imaginary visuals, since I hadn't seen the movie. 26 days! It's insane. (laughs) It's literally insane. Like, and yeah, presuming the fact that he must have, like, had to redraft it, you know, in that period, I doubt he, like, literally wrote it, like, as it was in 26 days, like, in one single run through you know Mm. and it's just an extraordinary feat and i suppose it's quite common in this particular area of novelizations you know this all has to be done towards tight time scales so the novelization can come out when the movie does but yeah it's just eye-watering and serious respect i really want to read that chapter on leia's backstory same i think he would have done it really well to be honest and I think even though obviously it's not canon, like to be honest, this whole novel isn't canon in air quotes at this point because it's been superseded by the new canon under the Disney leadership. Like, I think it would just be fun, you know, like to get that alternate view of what Leia's past was like. I I always enjoy that sort of thing. Yeah, and I wonder, like, would he have kept it in kind of more keeping with Alan Dean Foster's Splinter of the Mind's Eye or would it have been totally new? Um, And even the stuff that we get in here about Leia's childhood isn't all that accurate according to current canon anyway. So yeah, George might have had his ideas, but they obviously evolved. Exactly. Yeah. No, so things changed a great deal. Well, not a great deal, but you know, in ways that matter to nerds. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's really important, Rachel. But, but Leia's adoption was like known to the people of Alderaan. It's so important. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to go into that. Oh. Um, yeah, and then we just have a little excerpt from an interview with Khan that was given to Star Wars Newsnet in 2015. Um, and yeah, it's a really nice interview. I'd recommend reading it. And perhaps the nicest thing that I appreciated is that um, James Kahn, he seems to like have a real affection for Star Wars and these characters, which I think comes through in his writing. You know, you get a sense of real engagement with them and their respective situations. Not unlike Donald Glutt. Who's <laughs> <laughs> too cool for school. Yeah, exactly. He's like, oh, I'm so above it. Oh, I don't care about the stupid characters. No, like he wasn't like that, but he, you could tell it was just a job to him. I think he was more just like bemused by the overwhelming waves of devotion from the fandom. Whereas I think James Khan presumably would have been all too aware of the fact that there was quite a lot of pressure on him for this. And I know it's a novelization, so not every fan would read it. But at this point, Star Wars really was a cultural phenomenon. You know, yeah. it had been for a few years. So that probably was a little bit of pressure. No, exactly. Like it had had that much more time to like build up and gain momentum. So, yeah, it was a very different situation from the one Donald Glove found himself in. Um, so, yeah, I'll just read this out quickly. So, Star Wars Newsnet. How involved were George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan in your adaption of Return of the Jedi? And then James. 
Kasdan not at all. I had one meeting with Lucas before I began, where I expressed questions about backstory or motivation. He is pretty open to all my thoughts, except for one whole idea I had about Leia's backstory that just didn't jibe with what he had in mind. Sad. Star Wars Newsnet. <laughs> a passage in Return of the Jedi where Obi-Wan describes how he and Anakin duelled over a lava pit and that is what left Anakin Skywalker scarred and ultimately sealed his physical transformation to Darth Vader is something fans had in their heads for over two decades before they ever saw it play out on screen. It was never in any cut of Return of the Jedi, as far as I know. Was this your idea, George Lucas or Lawrence Kasdan, or was it a collaboration of you three? That was all Lucas. He mentioned the lava pit in the vaguest terms when I asked about that transformation, so I wrote it in the vaguest terms. But my sense was he had it all down in detail, in his mind at least. And yeah, that is one of the, like the most intriguing aspects of this novel, that you do get glimpses of things that later came to pass in the prequels, like Anakin being scarred in the lava. Yeah. I I, mean, I know that there are some things that don't hold up and don't translate to the prequels or later on in canon, but that really is like, oh, George had that in mind as like one of the fundamental aspects of Anakin's character yeah. and, and what happened to him and how it shaped his life going forward. And it's a really, like, as you said earlier, it's a really graphic, violent, painful thing to happen like you, you can't even imagine that level of pain and agony that he went through in that moment it's a real metamorphosis isn't it yeah exactly and to live through it it's like anyone else it would have killed them so yeah it's a surprisingly brutal episode in star wars history we're in a different age bracket this interviewer is obviously talking about how people who read this back when then had that in mind as they were watching the prequels we didn't because we just watched the prequels as kids, you know? So it yeah. probably did have a quite a different feel to adults who had been all too aware that that was where the story was going for years beforehand. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because it demonstrates the importance that would have been afforded to these novelizations in the fans' minds. Like, you know, when, for example, they found out that the prequels were officially going to happen, I bet you anything that fans went back and scoured these novelizations for every little hint at what had happened in the past. And mm. something like that would have really jumped out. You know, like, what, a lava pit? Or Owen and Obi-Wan being brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. They, but I bet there was lots of disappointment when that didn't come to pass. It's like, oh, my, all my theories are crumbling <laughs> I bet there were like Jedi Owen theories at one point, you know, like he went to Jedi school but he was bad at it and got kicked out and then he was bitter <laughs> and hated the Jedi. <laughs> I prefer it the way it is because then we get Shmi, you know, she's yes. the link. Exactly. Yeah, I like it being matrilineal. Yeah, so that's actually a good point at which to turn to our next topic area, which is the relationship between the novel and the film. Um, and I think as James Kahn himself has said in the interviews we've read, uh, it's pretty close, you know, like there aren't huge surprises or differences um, from what happens in the film. And even for the most part from what happens in what continues to be the canon, though there are obvious differences, that differences that only matter to huge Star Wars nerds, but differences nonetheless. Yeah, it's very similar as with the other novels that we've read, but there are just... I mean, there are glimpses of deleted scenes that are now, like, infamous, right? Like Luke building his new saber. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
which I hadn't watched in years and I just watched it before we started recording because I was like, oh, I want to see how it compares with the novelization. And it's so fleeting and it's so... Have you watched it? I have seen it. Like, my main memory of it is that it's kind of like a nothing burger because it's so it short. Is. <laughs> so in the book, James Kahn actually does an impressive amount with it because it he kind of gives it the level of seriousness and, you know... It is an, it's an important moment. It should be for Luke. But it, in the deleted scene, I was kind of surprised to watch it and be like, oh, he's just on Tatooine. He's just like fitting it together. And then it's like, off we pop. <laughs> it, it doesn't have the weight of like what you'd expect from like a Jedi ritual or like this coming of age moment, especially because there are parts in the story. Um, I don't know if we have the quotes to hand, but like he's reflecting on the fact that he's not using his father's saber anymore. He's using his own. And that's part of what makes him a man now. Yeah, um, that he built his own, and it it means something symbolically. But um, I guess you do get that in the movie in terms of when Vader takes it from him, and he has this almost like proud father moment where he's like, "Oh, I see you've constructed your own." Um, <laughs> but that scene, I was just like, I was really surprised by how Khan managed to like give it this this gravitas that it just doesn't have in the deleted scene. So it makes sense for it to have been cut. Yeah, no, like, and I think that is one of the things he's best at. Because, like, I love Return of the Jedi, just to be clear. Like, as a child, it was unequivocally my favourite Star Wars film. You know, like, it's just so much fun. You know, like, it's kind of irresistible in that way. But there are definitely aspects of Return of the Jedi that aren't quite as narratively compelling, shall we say, as, like, The Empire Strikes Back is consistently, you know. Like, I struggle to find fault with any aspect of The Empire Strikes Back, really. Whereas there are, like, stretches of Return of the Jedi where it's a bit like, mm, like, it's a bit petering along, it's all very pleasant, but not really feeling the stakes here. Like, you know, there's like, lots of traipsing through the forest, for example. And one of mm. the nicest things that James Kahn does in the novelization is he takes things like that that don't feel particularly like immersive or otherworldly in the film and he makes them like really rich and textured and gives it a lot of like meaning and backstory and layers and implications for the characters inner journeys and all these things and yeah it's just impressive you know the extent to which he engages with the material so yeah i liked it yeah i i really liked the way he had leia kind of interacting with her surroundings on endor and how it kind of brought things full circle and at their lowest point and where they thought that they might you know be dangerously close to losing the war it reminded them why they were fighting and what really mattered in the world yeah exactly stuff like that where it really excels um so yeah like in terms of other differences like one of the most striking things is that there's a different backstory for luke and leia's mother who's unnamed in this novelization she's just mother um so yep, this is basically conveyed via Obi-Wan. And I believe this came directly from the script. I don't think this was, this was from Khan. It was just him moving over from the script to his novelization. So here we have Obi-Wan saying, When your father left, he didn't know your mother was pregnant. Yes, he did. Your mother <laughs> and I knew he would find out eventually. But we wanted to keep you both as safe as possible for as long as possible. So I took you to live with my brother Owen on Tatooine. And your mother took Leia to live as the daughter of Senator Organa on Alderaan. 
Um, yeah, and then it goes on about Leia's adoption um, and also gives some cool backstory about what's going on with the House of Organa. Um, could you read out that paragraph, Kirsty, and then we'll discuss? Mm-hmm. The Organa household was high-born and politically quite powerful in that system. Leia became a princess by virtue of lineage. No one knew she'd been adopted, of course, but yes, it was a title did. without. <laughs> but it was a title without real power, since Alderaan had long been a democracy. Even so, the family continued to be politically powerful, and Leia, following in her foster father's path, became a senator as well. That's not all she became, of course. She became the leader of her cell in the alliance against the corrupt empire, and because she had diplomatic immunity, she was a vital link for getting information to the rebel cause. That's what she was doing when her path crossed yours. For her foster parents had always told her to contact me on Tatooine if her troubles became desperate. So again, just like in Splinter of the Mind's Eye, Brea doesn't seem to exist in this this version. Or at least, I'm sure, yeah, they have the hypothetical mother who's never really acknowledged or named. They do actually refer to her a bit more explicitly later, and they say she was the Minister of Education. Well, th- this is the thing. It's actually quite nice that we have the subversion in canon where she was the queen and and Bale took her name, right? Yeah. No, which I really love. I'm really happy they made that change. Like, it was a big improvement, in my opinion. Um, But yeah, like, in terms of differences, like, the most important one is obviously the whole thing about the mother, Padme, I'll just say Padme, so it's easier, surviving after the children were born and taking Leia to live on Alderaan. Um, what's left decidedly unresolved is like what happened to her after that point. You know, she evidently died after taking Leia there, but what did she die of? How long after Leia was born did she die? And obviously the implication is that she died perhaps a few years after the children were born because Leia has some memories of her. And they obviously explain that away in the new canon through all sorts of ingenious techniques that are... Mm, like not completely convincing but fine star wars (laughs) you do you um but yeah they're they're just like small differences to the backstory essentially which are fair enough because it's understandable that that stuff would evolve as the story did yeah i will say what strikes me is that she's still not even afforded a name whereas palpatine was the emperor's name from the beginning like george just picked his name did he have a name in mind for padme is Padme the name he had in mind all along? Yeah. Or was it not even that far fleshed out at that point? She was just the hypothetical mother. Yeah. Uh, I would like to know. I have a sneaking feeling that she probably was just a nameless mother slash wife at this point in the development. So I feel like, I don't know, if George had had a name for her, I think he might have just said what it was because if he really did think this was where it was going to end for him, you know, why not? let that information out there in this novel um mm. but yeah like it continues the typical Wars trend of like mothers the sort of a thing like yeah you kind of have a mother who has to like give birth to you and stuff but not, not really that important after that <laughs> well, it's, it's a shame because they're going into it she's mentioned plenty of times but it's almost it almost has this level of contrivance where it's like your father and your mother it's like well we know anakin's name so can't you just give her a name too yeah Exactly. It's like so close yet so far. But I guess it's the parallel of us now not knowing what Ray's mum's name is. Oh. <laughs> Palpatina. <laughs> Sorry. 
And I know, to be clear, if anyone is listening to this, that she is not the descendant of Palpatine, the story, and uh, I'm not going to go into it, it's too, yeah. No. <laughs> we'll get it eventually, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure we will. We'll get that their Stoll story. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I thought then we could talk a little bit about the world building, because yeah, they do some really nice, interesting things with that. Um, what I'm saying they, because Khan does some really nice, interesting things with that. Um, what were your favourite like extra details and like insights that the novel gave that weren't necessarily in the film, Kirsty? Um, I really liked the way that Endor was described. I feel like James Khan must be a real lover of nature. For the yes. way that he was talking about the trees. Can I read out a bit? Yeah, of course, go for it. Um, the trees of Endor stood a thousand feet tall. Their trunks, covered with shaggy rust bark, rose straight as a pillar, some of them as big around as a house, some thin as a leg. Their foliage was spindly but lush in colour, scattering the sunlight in delicate blue-green patterns over the forest floor. Distributed thickly among these ancient giants was the usual array of woodsy flora, pines of several species, various deciduous forms, variously gnarled and leafy. The ground cover was primarily fern, but so dense in spots as to resemble a gentle green sea that rippled softly in the forest breeze. This was the entire moon, verdant, primeval, silent. Light filtered through the sheltering branches like golden ichor, as if the very air were alive. It was warm and it was cool. This was Endor. And that's not the only passage that's like that, but I just really enjoyed it. It felt almost Tolkien, lush descriptions of nature. And you, you feel that in the movie on Endor, right? The... The trees are such a huge aspect of that part of the story and you get this sense that they are surrounded by beautiful nature. Um, But I just appreciated that that was kind of echoed in the novelization. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I feel like those were some of the strongest passages. Like, we'll have more and layer later on. And one of the longest quotes I've included is, like, basically her viewing the trees, you know, and reflecting on them and what they mean and how they interact with the force and stuff. And it's just a really beautiful passage. Um, Yeah, like for what it says about that world and like how it enriches the mythology of the force and like the majesty of the natural environment and then how it ties that to the personal level with how the character appreciates that. And yeah, it's just a real strength of the novel and it's really Mm. nicely done. I don't know if this was intentional, but it also seemed such a strong contrast from the beginning of the novelization where they open on Tatooine. And they're emphasising what a desolate, depressing place that is. Yes. (laughs) No, that's and that's a great segue, Kirsty. So I have a nice quote about why Jabba the Hutt chose to live on Tatooine in the first place. So I really like this passage. Jabba was the vilest gangster in the galaxy. He had his fingers in smuggling, slave trading, murder. His minions scattered across the stars. He both collected and invented atrocities. And his court was a den of unparalleled decay. It was said by some that Jabba had chosen Tatooine as his place of residence because only in this arid crucible of a planet could he hope to keep his soul from rotting away altogether. Here the parched sun might bake his humour to a festering brine. (laughs) It's just so great, isn't it? I love how vivid that language is. It's It's very bleak and obviously it's emphasised in the story that oh, Luke's back here again, not by intent, like he didn't see himself ever coming back here, but he reflects on how much he's grown since he left home, and and when he leaves, it is like he's leaving his home planet for the second time. Um, Yeah, and obviously there's that funny interaction with Han where he's like, oh, we're going to die here. (laughs) 
Exactly. Um, yeah. There's lots of nice shade at Tatooine's <laughs> expense, which I appreciate. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. Like and I also love the idea that the only aspect for Soul that Jabba the Hutt has left is his humour. Because that comes across to me in the film because the, when I think of Jabba the Hutt I think of that laugh. Like I was talking to my dad on the phone the other day and he like randomly went ho 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 <laughs> And I was like, Do you know which Star Wars character you reminded me of? And he was instantly Jabba the Hutt and I was like, Yeah <laughs> It was great. But yeah, no, so there's great like stuff like that. Um, there's some nice bits about like Mon Mothma, for example. Um, there's lots of respect for Mon Mothma, which I appreciate because we respect Mon Mothma in this house. She's like the one of well, no, we have Ula, but that that whole thing is just really sad. Um, yeah. But yeah, aside from Leia, Mon Mothma is pretty much it for <laughs> female characters, at least highlighted in the Rebel Alliance. So, exactly what little he was able to do with her, I appreciated. Yeah, no, and I think it's notable that she's the only female character apart from Leia in the original trilogy to have political authority. And I think she's, well, no, I don't think she is obviously superior to Leia in terms of her rank and her influence. So it's nice to get a character like that, even though she's obviously a very tiny role (laughs) in the actual film. Um, And yeah, like she's expanded on in the novel again, and there's some nice background to like her position as a politician and her role which isn't made explicit in the film at all so it's really nice to get that yeah and it kind of has it reminds you a little bit of rogue one and how she's positioned in that story right the timeline's yeah. obviously different but emphasizing her joining her political cells with the thousands of guerrillas and insurgents and yeah just it rings true for what we know of mon Mothra and current karen yeah exactly it's one of those aspects that has aged very well because it could apply just as easily to a modern canon book um and yeah like then another thing that i like to take over to the dark side is there's some really weird but fascinating (laughs) um insights into the quasi-sexual like going on like on the Death Star with Palpatine's entourage and it's like disturbing but interesting I think is the best way to put it I don't even know if that's it or if it's just Vader's warp perspective (laughs) as a repressed half man half machine like all Puritans he's obsessed with sex (laughs) (laughs) sorry I lowered the tone I Um, don't even know if that's the intent it's just very um like puritanical judgmental language about how other people must be living their lives and how he is pure and focused and (laughs) a dedicated servant of the dark side Mm. um yeah could you read out the passage in question so people know what we're talking about and giggling about the main corridor was filled with courtiers all awaiting an audience with the emperor vader curled his lip at them fools all pompous toadies in their velvet robes and painted faces perfumed bishops passing notes and passing judgments among themselves for who else who cared oily favor merchants bent low from the weight of jewelry still warm from a previous owner's dying flesh easy violent men and women lusting to be tampered with vader had no patience for such petty filth he passed them without a nod though many of them would have paid dearly for a felicitous glance from the high dark lord <laughs> in his mind <laughs> I don't want to kink shame Vader, but <laughs> what is going on here? It's especially funny if you like have a visual of what these courtiers actually look like in the film. <laughs> because 
Like they made action figures, okay, of some of these courtiers. I can't even remember what they look like. They're literally seen for like seconds in the background, you know. Okay. Like very negligible figures. And are they like heavily made up and stuff? Yeah, there's lots of powder and stuff, but like it's like very old men. Like I think almost all of them. Like we had in my, in my house, we had the action figure of one of them. <laughs> he definitely did not look like a man who wanted to be tampered with. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it just kind of comes out of nowhere and i guess it it does give this interesting lens of vader's character like clearly so isolated from other humans and just like social interaction that maybe he kind of interprets all of that now like all of that communing and communicating and whether it's physical touch or not he thinks of it as like this sullied thing that distracts him from his purpose and mission in life yeah okay so i have to bring up something else um, I have to read this out because you'll see why. <laughs> cool. Uh, Darth Vader watched their approach on the view screen in the control room of the Death Star. When docking was imminent, he marched out of the command center, followed by Commander Jedrod and a phalanx of Imperial stormtroopers, and headed towards the docking bay. He was about to welcome his master. Vader's pulse and breathing were machine regulated, so they could not quicken, but something in his chest became more electric around his meetings with the Emperor. He could not say how. A feeling of fullness, of power, of darkened demon mastery, of secret lusts, unrestrained passion, wild submission. All these things were in Vader's heart as he neared his emperor. These things and more. Okay, what is going on here? What is the intent there? Genuinely asking, because if we're supposed to think that Vader is in love with the emperor in a way. Yeah, like, it's, it's really interesting. I think what they were probably going for, and I'm being generous, you know, and, I, and I'm avoiding the seedy interpretations that we're so leaning towards. Um, but I really think it's kind of this idea that the Emperor, like, he's less a person to Vader at this point than, like, a symbol, you know, of everything that Vader wants. You know, like, there's lots of, like, reflection on the status of the Emperor, you know, and how desirable that is to have all that power and all that control and how like Palpatine embodies this perfect evil, you know, and this perfect control over everything and how Vader like desires that essentially. So it, I have to like rationalize it as not so much Vader being interested in the personage of Palpatine because it just gives me a shudder. I can't, um, but him like viewing Palpatine as like the end goal, you know, like I want what this man is, what this man has, you know, yeah, I suppose if you're also conscious of the fact that you're being deceitful and lying, because he is at this point, he his goal is to kill Palpatine and and rule with Luke, right? Yeah. So if he's aware that Palpatine has the Force as he does and can potentially read his mind and discover that secret, that would kind of make your heart race a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So there's lots of high tension going on in this novel. Um, but yeah, like the problem with discussing this novelization, to be honest, is there's lots of individual passages you know that are quite fascinating and like that would each warrant a discussion but obviously we're not going to talk about this novel for like three hours so gotta keep it down yeah well, that's the thing we could there are so many as you say great passages that i would just recommend that people go and read it because i don't know it just adds a lot of layers to the relationships that obviously we have a sense of from the movie and we kind of kind of elaborate in our own mind but um more so than the other novelizations that we've discussed so far, it really does kind of get into people's perspectives um, yeah. and share them in a way that 
like a new hope was very much the luke show right we got luke's perspective on everything but nothing from leia's perspective it was all just about how beautiful she was yes so yeah and i felt like empire strikes back i I didn't really get the sense it was told from anyone's perspective, to be honest. It just felt quite omniscient, you know, like yeah. it was a bit impersonal. I mean, and Vader's much more important as a character at this point for obvious reasons, so. Yeah, exactly. So he's easily at his most interesting in this novel, where, yeah, there is that license to go in much deeper into his psyche because it's out in the open about him being Luke's father at this point, And, yeah, they, they can really engage with that. Um so yeah let's move properly into the characterization it's obviously diff- you're kind of drawing false distinctions you know so you usually have a world building section and a characterization section but one of the nice things about the novel is that a lot of the world building is done from individual characters perspectives so yeah we see all this like corruption and cronyism like amongst the emperor's entourage through vader's eyes it's not presented as like an objective truth mm-hmm what did you feel generally speaking about the characterization in the novel Kirsty? like who benefited the most apart from Leia so we know she benefited hugely um and were there like any areas where you felt it could have been a bit stronger um I think mostly everyone benefited from it I feel like we got um a really good sense of how close Luke was to the dark in various places yeah um I thought the part the passage when Vader removes his helmet and him and Luke are kind of looking at each other and he's reflecting back on his life and allowing himself to finally love his son and love himself. That was all written really beautifully. Yeah. Um, and Han and Leia as well, I thought their relationship was, was portrayed really well. There were some lovely moments of introspection from Han, kind of reflecting on how far he's come with only caring about himself at the beginning of the story when we first meet him and how now he's pretty much fully motivated by his friendships and his relationship with Leia and how selfless he is now. Yeah, and I think that sort of thing came off much better in written form than it does in the film, to be honest. Like, to be clear, I love Harrison Ford, but I feel like he does much better when he's playing a character with a bit of an edge to him, you know, mm. like he's best at hand when he is the scoundrel, you know, and when he's the good guy, when he's General Solo, you can tell he's like a little bit tuned out, you know, he's not quite as into the role. Whereas, yeah, in the context of novelization, where it can go into his past, you know, and like comment on the progress he's made in a more explicit way, I feel like it feels more authentic and compelling. I will say that the one character I was kind of disappointed with what how he was treated and thinking about how much more there could have been there was Lando. Yeah. Um, and to an extent, I get it because a lot of what is there of Lando in Return of the Jedi is action. And at the beginning, we do get a little bit when he's first kind of introduced at Jabba's palace. It's this emphasis on how he's been there watching over Han and making sure that he's okay because of the guilt he feels about how things played out in Bespin. Yeah. Um, but after that, pretty much all of the Lando parts are kind of just like overwhelmed by references to gambling and puns and how much of that do we need? Like, we get it. He's a gambler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all about like the scandalous life he's led kind of. And yeah, like it wasn't as interested as it wasn't as interested in engaging with his full humanity and giving him the sort of depth it gave the other characters. So yeah, yeah. it was definitely one of the limitations. 
How about you? What, what were your favourite parts for characters? Yeah, like it's broadly the same, to be honest. Like I feel like most of the characters, like unfortunately excluding Lando, really benefited um, from the treatment James Conn gave them. I feel like real standouts to me, though, were Luke and Leia and also Vader, especially because of that ending when he's Anakin again. Um, That was really strong to me. Um, And yeah, like I feel like with Luke in particular, like, so I do like Luke, but he does come off a bit bland to me sometimes in the films. And I felt like there was some really great stuff engaging with that darkness, as you said, Kirsty. And I felt like I believed the temptation more in the novel, again, than I did in the movie sometimes. Um, And yeah, again, it's just because the novel is able to give more time to it in a way that the film can. You know, the film depends heavily on like a brief look on Mark Hamill's face, you know, and it's much more fleeting. Whereas in the novel, you get like several pages on Luke's thought process, for example. Actually, I do have quite a long passage, but I think it's worth reading in full. It's really nicely done on Luke's introduction when he first arrives in Jabba's palace. Um, I've highlighted it a bit further down from the heading, Kirsty. Would you be able to read that out? Sure. He was clad in the robe of the Jedi Knight, a cassock really, but bore neither gun nor lightsaber. He stood loosely without bravado, taking a measure of the place before entering. He was a man now, wiser like a man, Older more from loss than from years. Loss of illusions, loss of dependency, loss of friends to war, loss of sleep to stress, loss of laughter, loss of his hand. But of all his losses, the greatest was that which came from knowledge and from the deep recognition that he could never unknow what he knew. So many things he wished he'd never learned. He had aged with the weight of this knowledge. Knowledge brought benefits, of course. He was less impulsive now. Manhood had given him perspective a framework in which to fit the events of his life, that is a lattice of spatial and time coordinates spanning his existence, back to earliest memories, ahead to a hundred alternative futures, a lattice of depths and conundrums and interstices through which Luke could peer at any new event in his life, peer at it with perspective, a lattice of shadows and corners rolling back to the vanishing point on the horizon of Luke's mind, and all these shadow boxes that lent such perspective to things, well, this lattice gave his life a certain darkness. Nothing of substance, of course, and in any case, some would have said the shading gave a depth to his personality, where before it had been thin, without dimension. That is kind of what you were saying. Yeah, I was about to say, like, I kind of loved that, especially as it was sort of like a meta comment, and I was like, I feel that from a deep, deep place, so thank you. And I feel mean, I feel mean, but it is just how I feel about Luke, so... No, it's actually hitting me now that he's probably making a commentary on the first two movies. Um, though such a suggestion probably would have come from jaded critics reflecting a jaded time. Nonetheless, there was a certain darkness now. There were other advantages to knowledge. Rationality, etiquette, choice. Choice, of them all, was a true double-edged sword, but it did have its advantages. Furthermore, he was skilled in the craft of the Jedi now, where before he'd been merely precocious. He was more aware now. These were all desirable attributes, to be sure, and Luke knew as well as anyone that all things alive must grow. Still, it carried a certain sadness, the sum of all this knowledge, a certain sense of regret. But who could afford to be a boy in times such as these? Yeah, and I feel that sort of speaks for itself as a piece of writing. I honestly think that passage in particular is a much stronger and compelling depiction of Luke than anything in either of the two previous novelizations. Yeah, I think it's a really 
interesting way of kind of describing that growing up and that inevitable sense of regret that you carry that comes with knowledge and um yeah it's real really bittersweet yeah it does also make me think about that idea of who could afford to be a boy in times such as this it makes me kind of sad you know when reflecting on the character especially in the wider context of his life in the later films because you sort of think well Luke basically had to force himself to grow up very very quickly because of what happened to him and the responsibilities that were thrust upon him and he then never let go of that responsibility you know he always held on to that and it really weighed him down and completely shaped his perspective and not necessarily always in good ways you know and I I think about how things went wrong with Ben Solo you know and if he perhaps hadn't had quite as severe an outlook you know and he had had a more like humanistic perspective you know like might he have been able to help his nephew more that Mm. sort of thought enters my mind because obviously I'm thinking about Ben Solo a lot of the time um but yeah like and this is a really strong piece of writing because of stuff like that you know because it does make you feel the wholeness of the person in the way that only a novel can and yeah it's really nice stuff yeah i think even at the end there's this way of the sadness to luke which makes sense because he's saying goodbye to his father who he just just knew and just came to love but um in general as well like the way that the other characters are all kind of described when they're around the the campfire in the Ewat village there is this like obviously sense of relief and celebration but there's the, also the sense of of weight of of what they've lost yeah exactly i wish that was too. more explicitly explored because i feel like they come close i'm, I'm go- jumping ahead to kind of the sequel trilogy and how this stuff shaped luke's future as you kind of alluded to like they were all still so young when all of this happened to them and then we kind of leap 30 years into the future and history is repeating itself but there's not like this explicit um acknowledgement at least from what i've seen from like the writers and creators um and it kind of shows in in the story it's like maybe we could explore the effects of that ptsd on these characters yeah um i think you guess the closest you get is probably luke in the last jedi but then um depending on your perspective it's like does is that brought to a satisfying end by the end of the saga and yeah people feel differently about that yeah and that's the sort of reason why I keep banging that drum for like a young Ben Solo series <laughs> because I feel like you wouldn't just explore Ben through that you know you'd also explore like his parents his uncle like all sorts of other characters as well and I'd want it to engage with that sort of subject matter you know like how do you process being the sort of people you came to be known as during this conflict and is that like your end destination in life you know, like the person that you were known for being during this time of war, you know, is that what you're going to be in perpetuity? Because, yeah, like it's the sort of thing where I don't think that's realistic or reasonable to expect anyone to be, but I feel like that's kind of what happened. You know, Luke was expected to always remain as he was at the end of Return of the Jedi, you know, and I mean that in a meta sense, in the sense he was expected to remain that way in fans' minds. And I feel like he was also expected to be that figure and understood to be that figure by the universe, like within the context of the films. Mm. So yeah, just lots of interesting subject matter to explore in that gap, I suppose, between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. Definitely. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, no, and like, there's so much cool stuff with Luke and is all written about really well. But yeah, like, really, I'd say a lot of it's heavily young in. You know, there's lots of talk about like the darkness of Luke and like this co- constant battle between dark and light. And obviously, those ideas don't necessarily come from James Khan because that's inherent in the story of the original trilogy. You know, and it's ideas that Lucas was engaging with because. He was interested in all that like mythic psychology stuff that like Young was famous for. Yeah, I mean the moment when he cuts Vader's hand off and looks at it and recognizes the similarity and finally understands that hating and fighting Vader is almost like hating and fighting the darkness in himself. Yeah. And then he generalizes that to the Emperor as well. And he, he says or he says to himself, It's not them I hate, it's the darkness in them and the mm. darkness in me and that's what I have to renounce and that's when he lays down his weapon and yeah. I, I love the way that part's written it's like this is everything this is the moment that his entire life has been building towards yeah and exactly. every moment in his life has shaped that that moment to come yeah and it like stresses the maturity of that decision and the significance of it in a really nice way um, which yeah, like, is really great. Like, and I obviously think that is a fantastic sequence in all Star Wars. You know, you like feel that on an emotional and and an implicit level just through the performances and the staging in the movie. But again, it's always nice to just have it stated so clearly, like it is in the novel. Yeah, and I love how um, I don't know if this organically fits in here in the discussion, but I just love how Leia is brought far more into the fold in terms of Luke's relationship with Vader, but um, also just the Force in general. Yeah. Um, because she is kind of in the movie, but there's just an easier way to do it in the novelization, it seems like, because structurally in the story, obviously she's off with Han, but because we have the Force, that can connect Leia to it in a much more um, tangible, explicit way. Yeah. When she's in the bikini and when she sees Luke... There's just this connection that allows um, her to play a much more active role, it seems like. Um, She's allowed to be more engaged and have a greater sense of agency. And it's a really great way of connecting Luke and Leia as brother and sister before that point in the movie where it's revealed. Yeah. And it makes it feel much more organic um, because... Yeah, like I feel like I'm giving like the movie Return of the Jedi constant shade in this discussion. It's just the limitations of the medium, I think. Yeah, no, exactly. Especially within that genre. Yeah, that's the best way of putting it. It's one of the limitations of the medium. Because, yeah, like in the reveal in the movie, it does feel very abrupt and like out of nowhere, you know. And I un- kind of understand why some fans probably felt insulted at the time when that was revealed to be the big other that Yoda spoke of in The Empire Strikes Back, you know. I know why people would have felt like turned off by that. But I think here, like, there's all that emphasis on that, like, intuitive link between Luke and Leia and, like, that communication that they have back and forth. And it also obviously builds nicely off the communication that Luke and Leia have at the end of Empire. Yeah, it feels organic. Yeah. No, so it doesn't fall out of nowhere and it builds very nicely so that the stakes at the end of the film where obviously Leia is suddenly being threatened with dark side turning. It feels much more like tangible, you know, like a real risk to like a real relationship that Luke has formed than, yeah, it perhaps does in the film. Yeah. And I'm sure other people might feel differently about this moment when Han kind of 
says to Leia, oh, well, when he gets back, I won't stand in your way, you know. Um, it's because he can sense that intimacy between them and it's less like jealousy and it the way that Khan writes it, it's like Han loves Leia so much that he wants her to be happy and he thinks that she'll be happy romantically with Luke. So he'll get out of the way. Yeah. Um, it's really nice. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. This is played just like a goofy, like, lols moment in the film, especially with Harrison's expression, which I love. I, just <laughs> I love that it. I love it so much. But yeah, it's played much more sincere in the novel, I guess. And it's very sweet and lovely. Yeah, and it, it's kind of built towards, as I said, the way that Han, his perspective um it's kind of shared throughout the story where he reflects on how far he's come and he and he says it out loud to like the Ewoks and stuff when they're trying to get them to to join the cause um it's kind of like the the culmination of his arc where he's come over the course of the story to fall in love with Leia and care about her so much and that's partly why he fights but at that point he's become so selfless that he recognizes that her happiness matters to him more than anything else so he'll get out of the way yeah. That's almost like a reversal of, of Anakin and Padme's love. Yeah, it's very touching. It's lovely. Like, Han is just like a real sweetheart in this. And you're like, yeah, you're such a good guy. I'm really happy you're a player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. Um, And yeah, on the subject of Han, actually, there's like really nice stuff. Like, And I particularly like how we see Han's transformation through Leia's eyes which again is part of a strong theme throughout this novel where we see a lot of stuff through Leia's eyes, which is wonderful. And I'll just read out a quick quote to that effect. So, Leia looked up at Han, shock quickly melting to joyous admiration. She knew there was a reason she loved him, in spite of his usual crass insensitivity and oafish bravado. Beneath it all, he had heart. Moreover, a change had come over him since he had emerged from carbonisation. He wasn't just a loner anymore, only in this for the money. He had lost his selfish edge, and had somehow, subtly, become part of the whole. He was actually doing something for someone else now, and that fact moved Leia greatly. Medine had called him General. That meant Han had let himself officially become a member of the army, a part of the whole. And yeah, it's really lovely. It's very succinct, but I just feel that perfectly captures the transformation that Han undergoes between the movies. Yeah, and when he when they do rescue him from the Carbonite, um, there's also this passage where Han is like genuinely shocked and humble that they came for him and saved his life. Yeah, like he didn't he didn't expect that. He just thought that was it because the way he describes him being in the Carbonite, it's not like he's dead or asleep. He's like almost half aware but petrified yeah it's horrible no it's really visceral like there's some really fantastic stuff like where it goes into the feeling of emerging from carbonization mm. again i'll quickly read out something from that visions from his childhood from his last breakfast from 27 piracies as if all the images and memories of his life had been crammed into a balloon and the balloon popped and they all came bursting out now randomly in a single moment it was nearly overwhelming. It was sensory overload, or more precisely, memory overload. Men had gone mad in these first minutes following decarbonisation. Hopelessly, utterly mad. Unable ever again to reorganise the 10 billion individual images that comprised lifespan into any kind of coherent, selective order. And again, I love that because in the movie, it's just Harrison to be like, oh, I can't Yeah, it's see. like, I can't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's just superior guys it's, just, it's superior 
depiction of that moment. Yeah, but I think it's doing a great job as a novelization because I think next time we watch Jedi, we'll keep these things in mind and it will enrich the story for us. Yeah, it actually really made me want to watch the film so I could have these aspects of it in mind, you know, when I was watching the movie again because mm. I think it adds some nice layers and yeah, it's really cool. Um, just before we get on to Leia, um, because I'm very much looking forward to discussing Leia and that's how we're going to close this thing off. I really wanted to cover Anakin's final moments because I think we've both talked about that as one of the strongest passages in the whole thing. Um, I have an excerpt from it. Could you read out the excerpt, Kirsty? Yep. Vader saw his son crying and knew it must have been at the horror of the face the boy beheld. It intensified momentarily Vader's own sense of anguish. To his crimes now, he added guilt at the imagined repugnance of his appearance. But then this brought him to mind of the way he used to look, striking and grand, with a right tilt to his brow that hinted of invincibility and took in all of life with a wink. Yes, that was how he'd looked once. And this memory brought a wave of other memories with it. Memories of brotherhood and home, his dear wife, the freedom of deep space, Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan, his friend, and how that friendship had turned. Turned, he knew not how but got injected nonetheless with some uncaring violence that festered until... Hold. These were memories he wanted none of, not now. Memories of molten lava crawling up his back. No. This boy had pulled him from that pit. Here now, with this act, this boy was good. The boy was good, and the boy had come from him, so there must have been good in him too. He smiled up again at his son and for the first time loved him, and for the first time in many long years loved himself again as well. <laughs> see it's just good guys luke is good the novel is good anakin is good it's all good yeah it's really lovely um actually that reminds me that there's another point i think maybe when luke first goes to him and gives him his saber um maybe i'm wrong but vader calls obi-wan ben and it really leapt out to me as like quite jarring yes anakin would never call him ben yeah no that's like a very out of character moment i think there are like a few tiny jarring moments like that where it's like "Mm." like how would he even know that was his name on tatooine (laughs) yes it's true it's like an alias yeah um yeah i guess what did people even think he was called like ben obi-wan kenobi (laughs) maybe or even benjamin obi-wan kenobi who knows um but yeah like it's just a really nice depiction of Anakin's final moments. And you, you can't beat the scene in the film, obviously. It's one of the most powerful moments in all Star Wars, you know, like Luke taking the helmet off and Sebastian Shaw's wonderful eyes and performance in those moments. But I think this is as good as any novelization could be in terms of telling the story of those final moments of Anakin Skywalker. And I think, like you mentioned, Kirsty, it's especially beautiful at conveying that idea that he's finding an inner peace in this moment as well and he's finding a way to forgive himself and to set himself free in that way because prior to this point in the novel there's been so much emphasis on like just the sheer deep darkness of vader's mind you know we get a lot of that perspective like what we were talking about earlier with him looking at the courtiers and forming like all those like judgments about them and like having these bizarre dark thoughts about what they were up to and stuff and you get the sense of someone who's just in constant torment you know in his own mind and here you really get that feeling of release so it's really beautiful Mm -hmm. 
There's a really nice moment that was added in the dialogue, actually. It's not in the passage that we just read out. But I think it's just before when he realises that Luke is like looking on his face and how different he must look from how he, he used to be. Um, he says, he echoes Yoda's dialogue, luminous beings are we, not, not this crude matter. Yeah. And I, I love that. I almost wish that was in the movie because it kind of, yeah, it's like, yes, you're, you're looking on each other, but you're so much more than the bodies that you have now. Yeah. And, and Vader was so much more than this. Exactly. And I might be reading too much into this, to be honest. It might be more straightforward than I make it out to be. But again, we're very much in Vader's perspective in this passage specifically. And I think what we're reading is his misinterpretation of Luke's tears. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, like Luke isn't crying because his dad looks like a horrible monster. He's crying no, because, because he's losing what else? his dad. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, that would be a huge emotional moment for Luke to finally see his dad's face. Yeah. Um, and he's probably like horrified by the clear physical suffering that he's gone through. But yeah. not like, oh, my God, my dad's well ugly. <laughs> But I guess it's just sad that Vader does sincerely seem to believe that that is where Luke is coming from. Like, I think I f- it's quite, yeah, it's quite touching because it's like he's he's self-conscious at that point about something that's so um, base and physical, which yeah. as we were saying earlier, like it's it's so distinct from how Vader has previously seen himself and set himself apart from other mortal beings. Yeah. So it is like he's kind of coming back to that. Um and like yeah seeing himself and kind of making peace with what has happened but also knowing that it, it's it's not everything you know that it's it's more about him making peace with the force so and i think there's also a part where he even thinks about how he wished that he'd been able to see yoda one more time um but that maybe he'll see them in the afterlife and of course he does yeah yeah no that was like i didn't say this earlier even though i should have so I must say, like my, if I have a criticism of this novelization, um, it would probably be that the ending feels very rushed. Um, like I think in the end, to be fair, in the movie, you cannot be like having the John Williams music and like all the p- actors you love smiling and hugging and stuff. Like no piece of writing could compare to that, really. You know, um, but it just feels very rushed and like a little bit of a damp squib, I suppose, by the end of it, um, and. In a significant change from what actually happens in the film, you don't have actual force ghosts. It's more suggested that it could be in Luke's head, for example, because mm. he kind of sees like Yoda, Obi Wan, and Anakin in the flames of yeah. like, Vader's funeral pyre. He doesn't actually see their tangible ghosts as he does in the film. Yeah, it's quite interesting that choice, isn't it? I wonder if that was just kind of down to the ambiguities in the script at the time, because mm. obviously there's a precedent for force ghosts. So. Yeah why wouldn't you just fully go there yeah no it made me want to find out what like an earlier version script was to be honest i can only imagine he took it from there like i doubt he would have just made it up out of nowhere Hmm. yeah okay cool um so let's move in to our final section of the discussion this novel um which like it's something that we've already talked about quite a bit so obviously I don't want to press the point too much who said it like a million times but Leia is really well done in this novelization, and I was very very impressed by what James Kahn did with her and also just the fact that he seems so genuinely interested in engaging with her perspective you know because I think you just don't get that sense at all from the others 
and it was really nice because he seemed interested in the character you know and he wanted to pull out details of her backstory and her personality and her vulnerabilities and yeah i like massively appreciated that yeah no i'm i'm with you i think she was treated really well throughout the story and as i said at the beginning going in this had been the novel i was most concerned about given the whole bikini thing yeah um, but that whole sequence at Jabba's palace from her walking in like completely enshrouded in disguise obviously the the audience isn't even supposed to be aware of who that is at this point and then being put on display and treated disgustingly by Jabba like all throughout that Leia has agency and an inner voice and she's proactive and she's connected to Luke and she's desperately trying to save Han and it was never treated as if the audience should be relishing in her treatment or ogling her as much as one could with a novelization yeah um yeah so that i really appreciated that and also in general i thought that the the han and leia romance was treated really well as well yeah no definitely like so i must say it was like if you think about how alan dean foster might have described leia in the bikini i, I do shudder somewhat exactly because i know that the bikini is complex because i don't believe even in the movie it's not like the, the other characters are objectifying leia or anything it's clearly like Okay, it's the villainous character doing this. It's meant to be gross. Yeah. Um, but still, in in popular culture, obviously, for a, for a long time, Leia in that bikini was objectified, and Carrie herself spoke about the discomfort around that, um, and what male fans would sometimes say to her about it, and all sorts. So I was like, going in, I was a bit apprehensive, um, because, like I said, even in the movie, it's not like treated as this really. I don't know. You're not you're not meant to be like ogling her and like that's not meant to be the point of it. It's meant to be that Jabba's doing that and that's wrong, but in in the hands of another author it could have gone in a different way. So Exactly. Jam- James Khan used a lot of tact. So yeah, it's very grateful. Oh yeah, so there's this famous excerpt of Leia on Endor where basically she's following Wicket and this is perhaps my favorite Leia sequence in the whole book. Same. Um, so oh, I'm so glad. Um, c- could I ask you to read it, Kirsty? You always read so nicely, so I always <laughs> like hearing you read these things, especially when it's okay. such a good passage. So thank you. Okay. She cast her mind adrift for a while, letting her feet carry her nimbly along among the gargantuan trees. She was struck suddenly, not by the smallness of the Ewok who guided her, but by her own smallness next to these trees. They were 10,000 years old, some of them, and tall beyond sight. They were temples to the life force she championed. They reached out to the rest of the universe. She felt herself part of their greatness, but also dwarfed by it. And lonely. She felt lonely here in this forest of giants. All her life she'd lived among giants of her own people. Her father, the great Senator Organa. Her mother, then Minister of Education. Her peers and friends. Giants all. But these trees. They were like mighty exclamation points, announcing their own preeminence. They were here. They were older than time. They would be here long after Leia was gone, after the rebellion, after the Empire. And then she didn't feel lonely again, but felt a part again of these magnificent poised beings, a part of them across time and space connected by the vibrant vital force of which it was confusing, a part and a part. She couldn't grasp it. She felt large and small, brave and timid. She felt like a tiny creative spark dancing about in the fires of life dancing behind a furtive, pudgy midget bear who kept beckoning her deeper into the woods. It was this, then, that the Alliance was fighting to preserve, furry creatures in mammoth forests helping scared, brave princesses to safety. Leia wished her parents were alive so she could tell them. 
I love this because it's like Leia having a spiritual experience. It reminds me of Rey in The Last Jedi feeling the Force. Yeah, exactly. I feel like if they'd gone further and like made this the text in the movie, because I don't believe this is text in the movie, to be honest. I feel this me is neither. James Khan like enriching it to quite a significant degree. I feel like I probably would have had the same sort of strong feelings about Leia that I did have about Rey in The Force Awakens. You know, this is the sort of stuff you can convey cinematically, but it needs to be very intentional. And you really need to want to do that with like framing and sound effects and performance and all those different ingredients. And like in the movie, like I I love the movie. I love Leia's friendship with Wicked. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's fun. But it's just not particularly like deep or spiritual. You know, it's just lots of traipsing through a forest. Whereas, yeah, like here it draws out all the deep inner workings of that experience you know in the response to the trees and being in that environment and i just don't think that comes across in the movie and is a really really nice addition yeah it doesn't come across but at the same time having read this now like i said i feel like next time i'll watch the movie i will be able quite easily to slip this into leia's experience during those scenes because yeah it's not incompatible at all. Yeah, you can be like thinking these profound, deep things while you're actually doing something quite mundane and physical, right? Yeah, of course. So I think we'll be able to to imagine that for Leia there. But I think this is why people and and why the creators went there in the sequel trilogy of making it so explicit that Leia did have this strong connection to the Force because it was kind of missing in the original trilogy, even though we knew it as like it was part of the plot that Leia turned out to be a Skywalker and that she she was strong with the force like the rest of the family but we didn't necessarily feel it like it was kind of in moments where it served the plot in terms of like as you mentioned on Bespin being able to go back and get Luke because she knew where he was yeah but this is like this is just for Leia and it's her kind of connecting everything in her life and kind of refueling her because at this point it's almost like Poe in The Rise of Skywalker. You really are starting to lose hope in a way because everything seems so impossible right towards the end. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of like that spiritual boost that she needs to remind her of why why they need to win. Exactly. Yeah. And like we didn't go into it, but again, because there's just so much. But like there's a really nice extension of why the Ewoks get involved in the conflict at all in this novel because in the movie it's kind of presented as they are told the story of what has happened in the previous two films and that convinces them to take part like whereas here like they have wicket for example like make a big grand imposing speech you know about the reasons for why they should get involved in the conflict and what's at stake if they don't yeah wicket is a great public speaker i don't know if people know this yeah no exactly he's amazing like and again this further increases my excitement for the ewok tv movies because i want to see more of wicked the politician (laughs) to be fair i don't think that is necessarily the angle they went for with those movies sadly (laughs) although i would have loved that it's all part of the fabric of his characterization Wicket wears many hats. Yeah, and to be fair, I do think it's somewhat ambiguous when the Ewok movies happen in, in relation to Return of the Jedi, although I might be wrong. Maybe they're prequels, so I'm not sure. I think it is meant to be ambiguous, so... But yeah, there, there's this lovely sequence where 
I can't remember. Is it Luke who gives the speech? For, oh no, it's three PO. He yeah, as you said, he like tells the story of the Galactic Civil War thus far to try and persuade them, and then that isn't quite enough. It's not like enough of an emotional connection for them. They're like, okay, well that's really sad for you guys, but what's in it for us? Um, and Luke gives a speech, and um, Han is talking about how he's come to like really care for the cause because of the relationships that he's built, and how the Ewoks should care too because they're friends now, and um. Yeah, layers actually. She she just says do it for the trees, <laughs> which makes sense for her because she's had this spiritual connection. But to everyone else, it's a bit like, Wait, what? Are you are you gonna say any more there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Is it just a great moment and in a book of lots of great moments? So yeah, like just to reiterate, read it. Um, and yeah, finally, like again, there's more we could talk about with Leia, but I, I want to keep this under two hours, ideally, with editing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just briefly want to get to some of the romantic passages. Um, and I think it might be nice to close on my favourite one, which I will attempt to read. So this is basically Han and Leia and they're on Endor and it's like a moment of high emotion and admitting to one's innermost feelings. So... Han and Leia turned to each other, full of feeling. All they'd struggled for, all they'd dreamed of, gone now. Even so, they'd had each other, for a short while at least. They'd come together from opposite ends of a wasteland of emotional isolation. Han had never known love, so enamoured of himself was he. Leia had never known love, so wrapped up in social upheaval was she, so intent on embracing all of humanity. And somewhere, and somewhere between his glassy infatuation for the one and her glowing fervour for the all, they'd found a shady place where two could huddle, grow, even feel nourished. So nice. Hmm. I, this honestly reminds me of so much of the Raylo discourse that we've had over I the years. I was going to say, there's actually something I want to add because it goes on. Oh, so. Um, but that too was cut short now. The end seemed near. So much was there to say they couldn't find a single word. Instead, they only joined hands, speaking through their fingers in these final minutes of companionship. I feel like I should be giving the Sky Talkers some royalties here because the hands are a language. That is serious, Ray and Kylo in the hut vibes. Yeah, it's super intense. It's history Joining repeating. hands, not needing to speak to each other because they're speaking through their fingers in this moment of companionship. That is a Raylo parallel. And I'll die on this hill. And also coming together from opposite ends of a wasteland of emotional isolation. I, I can hardly think of a better sentence to describe Raylo than that. <laughs> I, I honestly think that describes Raylo better than it describes Hannah Layard. No, but that's, that's what I love because, I you know, fandom in general sees all of these parallels with Anakin and Padme. But Han and Leia, not so much because they're not exactly, it's not the same kind of dynamic. Obviously, they're contentious. And like you say, they come from these opposite perspectives. But that was a real clear visual parallel, I thought. Yeah. No, it's really nice. Like, the language of hands is... God, the Sky Talkers really did hit a gold mine with that. <laughs> like, it's everywhere. It goes beyond the movies. It goes into deep canon. Yeah, I didn't expect to see something like that. It leapt out at me when I was reading. I was like, oh my god. I didn't expect to find something like that in this novelization. Yeah. No, it's so cool. Like, and... I think just the whole thing throughout the whole novel, because of this emphasis on the characters' emotions and their interior lives and, you know, explaining those relationships in a deeper way, the whole thing just feels so much more intimate and it made it a far more enjoyable experience for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think 
out of all of the novelizations we've read so far, I would definitely recommend people read this one. Yeah, exactly. And I think that talking about it, like as often happens in these situations, is just reinforced my high opinion of it. So yeah, like it was really nice. And honestly, it was a pleasant surprise because again, this novel is coming up on 40 years old, you know, and I maybe I'm being unfair to novelizations written decades ago but I don't expect much sophistication in terms of like human psychology and emotions and character insights and stuff you know I expect a kind of surface experience which is more what we got with the previous two and yeah this one just went to the next level and it really really paid off it was a great story so mm-hmm. yeah, massive kudos to James Khan. So thank you for writing this, Mr. Khan, if you happen to be listening. So. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, no, that's great. Um and yeah, thank you, Kirsty, for discussing this with me as always. And I look forward to when we get to the Phantom Menace. That'll be a very interesting leap forward. It'll be very different. And it's gonna kind of take me back to that time when it might have been a bit of a shock for some fans to suddenly go into the Phantom Menace and it wasn't what they were expecting. Yeah nine-year-old baby boy Anakin okay so let's round this out so I'm Rachel and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918 I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde until next time bye bye